Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Destination CMO. I've been really looking forward to having this guest on. Our next guest is Shahar Sorek. He's the Chief Marketing Officer at Overwolf, which is the guild for in-game creators. And he has over 15 different years of experience in games and the technology industry. He's founded, he's managed, he's led startups, including Seven Elements Studios, which is a game studio specializing in a massive multiplayer online strategy games. And in his current role, he leads marketing initiatives, investor relations, and fund investments. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be able to chat with you today. Thank you for having me, Vincent. Uh, likewise. Like something that is, when oftentimes when you think of startups, people think of Silicon Valley and definitely in this post-pandemic world, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily the case anymore. You actually live in 100% like a hot spot for startups. Yes. So tell yes. the audience here a little bit about like where you live in the startup community there. So I reside in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I think that square foot wise, it's probably the number one and maybe second to Sand Hill Road in terms of the density of startups and just initiatives that are humming and buzzing around it. Considering the population of Israel and the size of the country, it's pretty remarkable. I think there's a few characteristics to the Israeli ecosystem that make it very unique. One of it is that uh, it's always on the hunt. It's always moving very, very fast just because we're in a hot spot and we need at our core always strive to survive. That's a big thing here. So you learn these things very early on just in terms of the environment. It's the Middle East, so it's very hectic and busy. And innovation is a big thing that keeps keeps Israel afront and, and surviving. So Technology is just a very natural extension to a lot of whatever's going on here. But then this entrepreneurship thrive and background and basically the need to push forward, experiment, take no for answers, reinvent the wheel, run and gun, run and gun is a very alive thread. It's very vibrant here from that standpoint. Yeah, I could definitely see the run and gun and just the grit and perseverance. I've had an opportunity to work with countless product managers, very, very talented designers and developers over the course of my career. For early on in your career, as you're going into marketing, there's just so much that you don't know that you don't know. What are some of the things that you wish you knew at earlier stages of your career? I'm going to pull you back a little bit to give you a little bit of background on myself because I haven't had the... So if you look at kind of your marketing stack or, or just in general, a marketing stack and how one grows from junior positions into senior position, I have not had your regular climbing up the ladder road. I was more... You went, founder, you went the founder route, right? Right, right. I went the no. founder route. And as a founder, when you start a company, you build everything. You're the chief product. You're the chief marketing. There's no chiefs. You're like four people trying to figure out what to do. (laughs) And you need to move fast between the verticals. And as the company grows and there's 10 and 20 and 30 and 40, then 50 people, you start to get real specialists that have way more experience than you to build out these verticals and scale becomes something that either it's your sweet spot or not. So for me, doing that with a few startups, 
I kind of transitioned. So a little bit about my background. I won't give you the full thing, but I was born in Jerusalem, Israel, had military service. I was a martial artist. I competed worldwide, five-time Israel national champion, and then had a, opened up a chain of martial arts gyms when I was in my 20s. And I went into the show business. I became an actor and a producer. And with that, I sold a show to the U.S. and moved to L.A. And in L.A., I was living a hard life of a producer and actor and doing whatever needed to be done. But in my background, since I was a kid, I was always a gamer. Before even that word was a thing. Before even people knew what that was. And at some point on a set in Romania while shooting a movie, I decided to build a game with a friend of mine. A strategy game. And push came to shove, it became a successful game. And slowly I was sucked in and building a tech company, which I've never, ever built in my life. And I didn't know what's going on. I'm cutting forward to what started shaping up a decade later is a skill set of building a company and telling a story to that company that started to be more and more relevant to marketing departments. Because as a founder and a CEO, you need to be able to, at some point, sell a big vision. So you start by selling something that you feel passionate about because you know the customer base or you have some sort of insight into some experience. But if you are of that ilk that can also tell a story, your insights can translate into stories that you can verbalize to people and impact them personally. And that became a skill set of mine. And what happened is I found myself time and time in room again, helping other founders tell their stories. And at some point, that became a full-on profession for me, where I moved in and I saw that that's a skill set I could hone. So the thing I think I wish that I knew when I started my career is that, I guess it's a deep insight that what matters the most is, is the customer base, is the more knowledge and insight you can garner on whomever is you want to be buying from you, you know, the more ammunition you have in your kilt to make things happen. And it's not so obvious because a lot of us come when we're eager, young, and even when we're very, very experienced, we come with a very formed opinion. And the formed opinion is kind of your own worst enemy most of the times, even though you've done it all and you can see the path and everything, but having the ability to apply what is called beginner's mind to almost every situation and problem, in particular in today's times, is a core skill set of, of driving a successful marketing organization and vision. That completely resonates. I think one of the most common mistakes that early stage teams make is they don't get close enough to their customer or their end user. You're describing even a scenario that's even worse than that, which is that you feel like you know the persona of your ideal customer right. so much right that you skip the step of validating right. what your assumptions are. And right. especially in something like working with gamers, you think of gamers as individuals who are sitting in rooms. And I think something that's like so different than some like traditional businesses, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's something in hospitality is in a restaurant or like in the hospitality industry, it's impossible not to have those face-to-face -face interactions with your customers right. because that's just the nature of the business that when you take a look at these digital businesses or SaaS companies, and even in SaaS companies where you refer to your customers as users, right? They're not even people, they're just, right. they're users and their data sits in a database. It becomes really easy to forget 
that there's a person sitting on the other side of the keyboard or on the other side of the phone. Right. There's always a meta conversation happening, a meta conversation, meaning there is the transaction that you and I are having right now, or mm-hmm. you have with your whatever customer is, but there's a deeper conversation that is happening. And there's a deeper reasoning to why this is even happening. There are desires, their wills, their dreams, their stories to be told. And as you form your strategy and how you want people to know more about whatever it is you want to sell them on, being aware of that meta conversation of the other person is essential. And the number one thing that is getting in your way is you. Your engine of self-deception and presupposed identities and opinions is kind of the number one adherent for you to really understand what is going on or kind of lay or configure some real insight or dynamic that is meaningful to the meta conversation that then can drive whatever results you're aiming to drive. So when you take a look at a company like Overwolf, as an example, very specific customer in terms of who they are, you grew up and consider yourself to be a gamer as well. How do you go about starting to develop the messaging and the messaging and overall story? So Overwolf is a, while within the gaming space, it's a complex company and story to tell because it has B2B, B2C, and B2B2C products. And they all need to cohesively exist. And Overwolf had a very hard time for a very long time to tell the story of what it's about and striking a chord because it's confusing all these audiences. It doesn't know what messaging to reside on. So there's something in my personal workflow or or the way I do, I try to hone in on how to reach branding and messaging that has to do with a value system, the value system of the founder and the company in particular, where I try to hone down to basic Based the core core messaging of what makes up the soul and the products of the company. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in, in Overwolf, there are five values. All of them exist within the gaming world. There's a lot. They, I'll just go through them really quickly. The first value is called on the hunt. We're very entrepreneurs. We're wolves. We go out. We bring our fair share. We're very proactive and we're constantly go go go. Also, if you think about who can join our team. You can immediately, once I go through the five values, understand do you fit or not? Or are you of that type? So the core is to build a set of values that then echoes through any vertical of the company. And then you can build a very defensible story on that. So on the hunt is one. The second one is called support main. If you're a gamer, you know where that term comes from, League of Legends and supporting, which means we're not the center of the story. The center of the story is our customer base. Primarily the creators, which we serve a creator economy. Uh, we have a creator economy platform for people who create on and on top wins. The third one is called Quest Complete. Anybody takes on an overall, they must complete it to its finest details. Must. If you take a task, so think on the hunt, you support me, you Quest Complete. The fourth one is called Tame Your Shadow. We all have our shadow roam about and interfere with our personal relationship and at work. And basically that's something... That's a value that's around us taking control of that side or at least trying to live and and handle it. And the fifth one is called become legendary, where the emphasis here is first on kind of a growth mindset and becoming constantly iterating and trying to become better and also legendary. You want to hit legendary results that are unparalleled. The five values of these, if you put them on a page, you'll get a vibe. First of all, they're all gaming terms. They come from an ecosystem. They're cohesive. They're aligned. And on that now, you can build a brand story. And on that, you can start to build a unique visual identity. 
And on that, then you can disperse it to the verticals, the different verticals, the B2B, B2C, and B2B2C. And once you do that, and it takes time, there's a lot of kind of chop wood carry water as you go about it because there's so many verticals you need to figure out and then slowly take down. Eventually, a year or two years in the process, you have a brand that just is extremely defensible and unique. And, and it's very tough to see this path through and kind of understand the ROI on it unless you went through a process like that. So with founders that are more performance-driven and numbers-driven, they need to hit a wall in marketing, a general growth. When I say marketing, I mean performance and brand. Entirety, the entire, sometimes it's split in companies. You need to understand that you're going to hit a ceiling. And the only way to break that ceiling is to really do some deep dive on how, who you are, what's your identity, how to tell the story, and how to make it extremely defensible and distinguishable. Just like Vincent, you are an extremely unique individual. And when we talk, it's very clear, who are you, who am I? So the same should be with companies, how they speak, how they sound, and how they propagate their messaging. And a lot of that varies so much depending on what type of company and how your company grows as well. You know, when you take a look at something like gaming, the myth is, is this person sitting in a room gaming by themselves. But the truth of it is it's a very social experience. Like gaming right. today is a very social experience. It's, it's not the same as you know back in the 90s when I'm on right. an NES playing Super Mario Bros. 3 where, you know, right. it's me by myself solo. And so when I hear you talking about like these five different pillars, it's describing this like aspirational identity of who I am when I interact with a product. And to your point, like there's a time and place for performance marketing in early stage startups where you have to hit certain growth targets, which shows progress and fuels the next round of fundraising. But CAC will always end up increasing until you really figure out the loops and when right. I say loops, I'm talking about customers telling other customers right. about a product. And that holds true, whether it's B2B and you're a company at a trade show and a B2B buyer right. is telling a friend that works at another company. And it just as equally applies if I'm trying out a new restaurant and I'm telling everybody about it. But you don't get that word of mouth marketing until you establish that brand. Exactly. And I think that getting that word of mouth marketing is becoming more of the lever to push because on the performance side, specifically now with the rise of Gen AI and all sorts of other tools, you have a lot of people pushing buttons and crafting mm -hmm. messaging. But to get those across, you need to do sort of a process, a version of a process which I've described, which will get your messaging to be extremely distinguishable. And if mm -hmm. you also know your performance, we'll then get it across and then your cap will have some sort of a K factor that will mm -hmm. drop it down. I think I'll give an example from the macro level. So I think there's a few meta conversations. I'm going to go back to that term. One of them is I think there's a meaning crisis. There's a meaning crisis. There's a lot of instability in the world. There's wars, there's viruses, there's floods, there's climate, there's politics, everything. I think that if I look at the young generation demographic at large, they have a lot of fears and issues with how will they survive, manifest, self-actualize in this world, and they're a generation that cares about it. So that's a meta-conversation. Now, when you come to build who you are and your brand and your offering, and you tap somehow into it, it's an example. I'm not saying that should, that someone should, but if you tap into that with your messaging, you are going to get a multiplier on your spend. Mm -hmm. Because 
people are just going to start to care more about what you say if you know how to repeat that and craft that in the various verticals. If you're doing some sort of creative work or whatever it is you're spending on ads or if those ads know how to message something that your core brand has and there's an alignment with that meta conversation, you're going to get a multiplier. And I think that in today's world, because it's so noisy and so propagated with messaging and performance marketing, from my point of view, it's what's going to make things different. Now, of course, it very it depends, all depends on what company, who you are, what company you're running. Some of that meta conversation is more relevant in that example to B2C than B2B. But each segment has a person at the end. And if you know the buyer is works in an agency or they are a supplier working at Walmart mid-level, you could profile their meta conversation and then build not only performance marketing that is professional to what they're meeting and what makes you stand out, but also have the ability to pepper that with more insights to what their story is. Yeah, going full circle, going back to like having conversations with the people that you would be targeting and not just asking the questions about the features of the product. I think so often times marketers fall into this trap of, well, what did you like about this product? What feature did you like about the product? Hey, did you know that we put this new feature in shifting the conversation to your point to like, what keeps you up at night? Like what makes you fearful in your career? What makes you sad in your personal life? What gives you joy in your personal life? And getting that full like 360 understanding of somebody's hopes, dreams, and aspirations is where, to your point, that marketing can become stronger. You hit gold when you have the balance between these two. It's not only the macro conversation, it's the micro conversation, but your ability to tailor kind of like, let's say, a cheat sheet of a conversation where you hit those kind of deeper notes and have people that know how to have these conversations with feature abilities and then translate that into marketing uh, initiatives is at the core of it. I think that a lot of brands, which is an opportunity for people who understands or come from kind of this attitude, a lot of brands don't understand that. A lot of companies don't understand that. They think that they hit a certain utility feature that's great and it's, it's selling is enough. I think that it's not enough in today's world. And in today's world, rising cost of user acquisition and spend are, are ruthless. I know it is in gaming, I'm assuming it's in other verticals the same. So you must come up with a comprehensive plan on how you speak, you tell your story, what is your story about it, and also what is the features that are going to be able to make the most ROI on by telling the story about it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And I think everybody's seeing the same increase in CPMs and we're going into a holiday season where Q4 Mm -hmm. CPMs always end up being higher, higher than the rest of the year. You mentioned generative AI earlier, and I think that's like a particular area where there's two different ways to use it. Like one would be like lazy marketing, put in a simple prompt, take Mm -hmm. what it cranks out and try to use that as your copy. I think the smarter way I've seen individuals use it is really like brainstorm to be able to create variations and then to drive those variations into experimentation. I think that's probably one of the biggest areas that marketers right now, like, you know, it used to be you'd get into a conference room before the pandemic, you'd give everybody post-it notes, everybody would brainstorm their ideas, put it up on a wall. And the number of kind of different angles that you can brainstorm now with generative AI, it's so fast to get all those variations, but it still takes that touch of a writer to be able to finalize that copy. But a big like iter- a pace of experimentation right now is such a big area to be able to try to keep CAC under control. 
Yes, it's not only experimentation. It's also, if we tie it to the storytelling, it's a great storytelling vehicle because you can reiterate on tone and language and you can create a cohesiveness through the messaging. So on one hand, you have experimentation, like you mentioned. On the other hand, you can form a unique tone of voice and then you work with it back and forth, back and forth, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You can try it. But then once you lock this tone of voice and you have the channels, you can experiment at scales. And basically what it did do is kind of allow for individuals with imagination and the ability to kind of go deep in their thinking to do things they couldn't have done before because you, you needed a writer before. Like, let's say I have the idea, I know what I want, which a lot in marketing is I know what I need to do, but I do not have the skill set to do it because to do marketing well, you need to do so many things great. There aren't an individual who could do all the skill sets, so you need to piece these things together. And what AI did in many, many ways is became kind of a legion of great people to banter with and calibrate and experiment and dig deeper. So I think it's a great opportunity for a lot of people and a lot of companies to whether they're going rogue with a few friends or whether they're a corporation to achieve things that you couldn't achieve before. Yeah, absolutely. Across like your career, what was the accomplishment that you were the most proud of? And like, what was the story behind that accomplishment? I think so often than not, you see these things on the surface level and you go, gosh, that company just launched and they were successful right away. Or this person hit this outcome. But the story behind it oftentimes isn't as simple as the instant success. I'm going to go kind of reverse engineering on that answer. And I think that the accomplishments I am most proud of is I had the opportunity to start another venture before I joined Overwolf. And something in me said, you have to do something you've never done before. And not something you've never done before. You have to take, it doesn't make any sense. Because at this point, I was already a seasoned entrepreneur. The funds and the investors were extremely notable. The sums of money were massive. And I decided to join Overwolf as a CMO, which on paper was not the choice to make. So I think many times the real accomplishments aren't the exits, aren't the campaign that exemplary. I think the real accomplishments are in transition. As a species... And also as marketers and as people, we don't pay enough attention to transitions. It's more about the things you didn't do or the choice you didn't make and why you made that choice or how you transit where nobody saw it. Nobody was sitting with me in the room when I had the Excel spreadsheet open. I was going like overwolf and I had all these line items of what I want in terms of money, self-actualization, family, friends, team. And I gave a weighted, I made this Excel that made these weighted scores for each of these. And I had three avenues to go with. One was my business, one was Overwolf, and the other one was another company business that I was involved in. And I got started giving scores. And I went through days and days and days and eventually made that decision. It was a very hard decision to make at that time. Today, in retrospect, it was probably the best choice I could have made from the KPIs that matter to me, which have to do with building a team and building the best team around and and really making or doing some marketing initiative. So under Overwolf, I made some really successful campaigns, also locally employer branding-wise in Israel and also worldwide. And really under my leadership, the name of Overwolf and its core story propagated out. I also am, which is not that usual for CMOs, I am the IR officer of the company. So I meet the funds. I meet the banks, the funds, that whole business environment, which isn't a given. 
So I get to see another target audience and how the big market forces think about our positioning in the market as a company that's becoming, which helps me a lot to shape or help shape the story of what do we tell the markets, although we're not a public company, but there's a lot of eyes on us because we're leading the market in user-generated content and gaming, and, and that's a thing that's happening. What do we want to say? What do we want to emphasize? What do we care about? So I think success is when you have a lot of where there's a lot of interface with a lot of different stakeholders and you manage to weave storytelling and performance through all of them. And you manage to cater to all of them where you don't kind of collapse because, oh, I got to get this. No, you you actually thrive and you can, it's like a symphony that you can uh, oversee as you orchestrate it with your team and with the leadership of the company. So one thing I would say, it's the decisions you take quietly or the people that don't notice those transition you make. I'm not going to date that girl. We dated it for three weeks, for three months, but you know what? It's not working for me where everybody's going like you guys are going to get married, but something internally just quietly when you're with yourself stops. And the other success is not so much a singular event that's successful, but it's a state, a state where you exist in relatively harmonious place where you feel you self-actualize, which is basically a state I'm in right now. Those decisions are so tough. Like the you know, Warren Buffett, who's obviously infamous for his investing decisions, said at one point, you know, there's like a dozen or so decisions in his career that actually mattered, which is mind boggling when you take a look at like decades of success, boiling it down to like a couple key decisions. You talked about like the KPIs that matter to you when you switch from one job or one role to another company to another role. I think we've all been there, right? Where you, you get a sheet of paper, you write down the pros on one side, the cons on the other side. But, you know, I had a big kind of like light bulb moment earlier this year when I was listening to a podcast and the person I was talking about essentially like the science of happiness. And I'm sure many people listening to this podcast have taken the Yale course on Coursera on the science of happiness. But one of the key takeaways is that more money doesn't make you exponentially happier. Then you've been talking about self-actualization a bit on today's podcast, and you don't reach self-actualization, the highest tier on Maslow's hierarchy with more money because money solves for your, your basic needs. I'll try to say something that ties into marketing. I think there's gold. If we take a moment like this moment right now, it has a depth and a width. There's gold in the depth and in the width. With this focus, how long can we hold this conversation? And then depth, how deep can we go? How personal can this conversation get? It goes later to marketing. It goes later to who you speak with. It's relevant to anything you do. And I think that once you build a skill set to go very deep, which is counter to anything society and signals you to do, once you have a skill set to go deep, you will find treasures. And some of them are going to turn into actual money and a lot of it. And some of them are going to turn into what I consider more substantial is how much intimacy can you and candor can you generate in a moment? If you can generate intimacy and candor, for instance, in this moment, which let's say we're at a four right now or five and working our way up, I don't know how much, then you can do it later in other areas as well because you've built that skill set. And then if you're you're in a room and you're trying to bring somebody to go with you on a road, you're going to be way more successful if you're building a system that's supposed to be propagated in the world. And that's how you, that's the glasses you put on your eyes. You're going to be able to not only, nobody puts those glasses on because everybody's optimizing yeah. for numbers in a bank which is, it's okay, it's a KPI you need to keep eyes on. But when you optimize for a deeper 
sort of speak value, when you optimize for depth, you are going to hit a different type of success across. You mentioned Warren Buffett. You know what I love about Warren Buffett is, I mean, there's many things I like about my guy, <laughs> but I think he was successful until he was uh, 65. He was like, okay, it's yeah. 65 to 90 that he blew out. That's just mind boggling. That means, like if you're listening to the show, optimize for physicality, optimize for mental health, optimize like mm-hmm. that should be the key thing, which we are not because we're optimizing, we're grinding at work, we're grinding mm-hmm. everywhere. We're buying, we're eating, we're consuming, we're partying, we're doing all those things, which I'm not saying we should stop, but we're not optimizing because the ROI comes when you have a lot of wisdom and you have depth, depth, when you know how to reach depth and you reach depth by developing relationships with your friends, with the people you care about, your children and whatnot. So, so, and once you do that, you can copy that to other areas. So that's it's a bit of a spiritual conversation, but that's the way I personally try to, that's the glasses I wear. That's a really good point about Warren Buffett, because like you have these, the founder stories that like make the, the movies, right? Are like Facebook, Zuckerberg was like in his dorm room, starting right. Facebook on a university campus. Right. But that isn't the piece that's norm. Like Jeff Bezos was 30 years old right. when he started Amazon. Right. Reed Hastings, 37 years old when he started Netflix. And so there's an entire world of learning there. But also when you read like the entrepreneur, the Inc., the Fast Company articles, they don't focus on the first 20 years of your also, career, which also is they a don't significant portion. These people, these great people, Steve Jobs among them, 30 years in, they won't care about the accomplishments that we're being sold. They mm-hmm. will care about, okay, did I have enough moments with my daughter? And the answer is no, you didn't. Right. So there's bank accounts and moments and depth. They haven't even, they were deceived. That's what I'm saying. The core of the issue is self-deception. Our, us towards ourselves, society towards us. We're right. like, I have a lot of friends that are extremely successful. Some of them are multi-billion dollar founder and companies that, I mean, they're wonderful and they're brilliant, but they're, as they move on, suddenly they go like, dude, I'm missing the show. I can't believe I built this company, like 1500 people, it's traded and whatnot. And I wasn't there for my kid. I wasn't there for my friends and I, I have all the money in the world, but okay. So it, how many more houses can I buy? And how many, you know, it's the math, the real math, the soul math just doesn't add up like that. What I loved about Warren Buffett is that he showed that you can accumulate a lot of wisdom and whether it's genetically and whether it's lifestyle and whether it's you have a long runway in this life, things can happen. But if you know you have a long runway, you could plan out a really great path that is very, very different than the norm. I think Chris Christensen from HBR has a great lecture on his friends from Harvard Business School, who all became extremely successful at a very young age. Depends on, yeah, I think you're right. In the, when you go into the depth of success, success can be measured in so many different ways. And to your point, like if you're missing dinners, people who will know that you missed dinner are not the journalists, are not the analysts, are not other founders, it's not coworkers, it's your kids. Your kids will be the ones that know that you missed that, that many dinners. The point of a moment, you can be at a dinner, but you're not there. Mm-hmm. You're still complacent. You can have a conversation, but you're not in it. Your head's somewhere else. You're not giving it. And the depth comes from being there. Now, if you're there with the people you like, your chances of actually moving the needle on 
the people you work with and your job increased tremendously. Yeah. In our house, we do no phones at the dinner table, no phones, no tablets at the dinner table. The only reason that you can touch your phone is to change the song on Sonos that's playing on the speakers. But that has been just a a really great change, a really great just like family rule. And when you start optimizing for those things and pulling this all the way back to career decisions, I would say probably 80% of people are making career decisions off the strict compensation, base salary, bonus, equity, chances that this equity will see an exit when they could be optimizing instead for, are you in taking this role and starting this company, are you doing something that you're good at? Because you should definitely optimize for your strengths. Are you doing something that the world needs and is helpful for the world? And then the last one is, are you doing something that makes you happy? And those criteria don't are focus on a completely different, different area. Right. I'll put the world, are you doing something great to the world aside for a second? Because that changed. I do, but to your point, I think, what is your core story as a person? Who are you? Your strength, your issues, your wants, your loves, your purpose. What is that story? And how do you amplify that story in that next journey? And that next journey, which is very hard, and that's kind of what I was saying about overall, could be down financially. You're not good. No, it's actually the take less money, which is just nobody does that. But sometimes that's really where the gold is because you're going to be able to work with somebody who's going to amplify a strength that you need to amplify. And that's the only way you're going to unlock that achievement. Being able to look at that and be able to also negotiate, of course, you need to negotiate living as you do these things, is very irregular for the general population, but it also shows up in your professional layer where you could say, guys, are we really, is that what we need to do? Yeah. If I want to ask you about a different area, kind of career decisions that you've made and similar to some of the roles that I've done, which is our advisor roles. It's a pretty common career path for seasoned CMOs and founders to start advising other companies, especially since early stage growth is just so important to the lifeblood of any startup. Tell me a little bit about like some of these advisor roles, how they came to be and the difference in influencing a company indirectly. Okay. So basically I led a startup to be about 80 people, have games and it was popular. So the VCs that invested in the startup, when they saw a founder that needed help, I also come from martial art background. I'm a kind of a organic coaching and mentoring comes to me naturally, although I don't do it that much, but it's things that when they show up or when they arise, I, I do that. So some of the VC says it started by, can you sit down with this guy? You know, they're doing a seed round, they're doing an A round. Can you see what's up with them? Raising money has been something that I was fairly good at. So it started by that. And slowly I had a great relationship in particular with like some of the young, we have some amazing talent come out of the special units in the military not so much the combative, but the intelligent forces, although the combative is fantastic too, but we have a lot of sophisticated intelligence and cyber tools that are developed in the military. And then later, these people go to develop them as products for the world. So you get to meet all sorts of really brilliant people, but they're brilliant, but they don't know anything about the world. And now go into a room and what you want to do, are you responsible, handle everything, develop a team. So I started to do that as just as a hobby, pro bono. And then some of these founders that started getting traction wanted to keep me along for the ride. So I basically started doing it as a hobby with no agenda. 
and got to work with some amazing, still am working with some amazing founders and extremely accomplished people. And one of the considerations I had in that time where I took over was to expand the advising business. Now, the advising business, I think, has a lot of, when you're wanted, it's a little bit like the VC business. And it depends on who you are as a person. It's a short, short wavelength business, meaning you're coming into the room, you're having a great like 30 minutes, hour, sometimes half a day with a company. You can provide a lot of value, but then you go. You don't actually build anything. And you might support and you might introduce them to more funds. And sometimes you might make a deal for them, but you're not really caring. You're not, as we say in Israel, when you're not really under the stretcher. And at some point, it felt to me like, well, that it's extremely lucrative. Because when people want you, you could do equity deals, you could do retainer deals, you could do retainer equity deals. And if you could scale that up, you could really develop, you could become a little startup, a one-man startup. But you're not really into, you know, you're a flyby eventually. It's not exactly a flyby because you do do some service. I don't want to discount it. But for me, I felt like I need, I need to really get into and do something and mm-hmm. build something and bring the people and take on some really hard challenges that you can only build from the inside. And it wasn't clear to me that that's what I wanted to do until I was faced with these choices where I had to really sit down and say, what the hell are you interested in doing? Is it because it was all okay? It was all great. I mean, if I optimize financially, it would probably be for my own startup to optimize for lifestyle would be to advise. But then I said, you know, I think I could deepen my skill set in telling this story of this company. And I would build something here that I've never built before in a way that I've never built it. And already um, I have experience. It's not going to be like with my startups where I didn't know what's going on. I already have some expertise and I have some people that I know. So I think it's, it's a personal question. Some people want the lifestyle. They want to be work three or four days. When you advise, you could really set your schedule and there's something wonderful about them. And some people need more to really get in there under the stretcher and move things around. I agree with a lot of what you said. And I think there's a world where full-time marketers can definitely advise. Obviously, you have to look at your current employment agreement, have the right conversation with your current CEO. But it is definitely like a developmental opportunity for CMOs who want to expand their influence into different industries, different verticals, and to be able to help companies that are not competitive with their current employer grow. And I've done a bit of advising work. Some of it has been phases of growth where I have a window where I'm really good at helping a company grow. But I also know the work optimization wise Mm -hmm. that I don't enjoy. Those are times where it is the right time to be able to bring in a CMO who is good at that 50 million to 100 million journey, which is totally different than the, the zero to 10 million journey. And one of the ways to be able to put that first advisor role is to stay on that company as an advisor, as you're interviewing, onboarding, but your backfill. But I think the biggest thing that I've learned from it is, are you a marketer that enjoys tactically doing, like you're describing, getting under the stretcher? Or are you a marketer that really enjoys coaching and developing and mentoring? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the advisory work is either mentoring and helping a non-marketing founder who might be stronger in product or might be stronger or might be a technical founder and doesn't have marketing experience. And that's kind of helping another executive with an area and like rounding out their strengths. Or 
in other instances, it's that person has hired a more junior marketer and you're operating as helping the founder with the strategy, but really mentoring somebody who's an earlier stage marketer. Right. I completely agree. I think as a general note, if you're a CMO that has never advised, get into it and do it. I think there's only good things that can come about, come out of it as long as it doesn't take over your time. Mm -hmm. But it's going to give you another perspective on how things run. To your point, I never saw myself as a CMO of a big company. And what I found out, which Overwolf today is kind of is, and what I found out is the mentoring and coaching when there's that, let's say North 50, $100 million company goes into a big team you need to build inside. So suddenly my team is nearly 30 people today with all sorts of mid-management and so forth. And to be able to kind of lead that team into becoming legendary, as I've said before, is a very unique way of, of kind of coaching and advising internally. So it really depends on who you are, where you're at with it. Do you have experience? Have you done advising? What kind of advising you've done? It's a whole ecosystem that really needs to meet you as a person, your own personal trip. I do agree that the technical product-oriented founder as a, at large, and you, I think as a general rule, will need an advisor on the marketing side. The world splits into two, those who understand they need it and those who don't <laughs> uh, because they're so smart. So they're like, whatever, yeah, I spend a dollar, I should get two, and that's all I care about. At some point, some of them early on, it depends on how self-aware they are to their own self-deception mechanisms and somehow not. The sooner they realize it, the better they are in tapping in you know, a marketing person to help them out. Yeah. It's been a pleasure chatting with you and putting up on the screen. You know, Make sure if you're listening, wherever you're watching this, to be able to connect with Shahar on LinkedIn. What's one book that you're either reading or have read recently? I always like to recommend to people the book, The One Thing. It's a productivity book. I don't know if you guys read it or not. It's extremely effective for busy people because I think that the core issue is to know what to focus on and what not to focus on, and how to optimize for things. Highly recommend it. We'll put a link to that in the show notes and the comments wherever you're watching this. The one thing, the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. Wherever you're watching or listening to this, make sure to like and subscribe with this podcast. Share it with another marketer friend, if you may. And we'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.